0: Take your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 34, Exodus chapter 34. One of the greatest defeats uh, during World War II took place in an area that we know as Singapore in the Malaysian Peninsula. Singapore was a city and a region that was controlled by the British and they had uh, controlled this region for uh, several well hundreds of years and uh, they had controlled this region and they had made it a region that had become quite prosperous. Uh, Singapore they had built into a fortress and uh, it was an island uh, city and so uh, it had its own natural defensive barriers but during World War II, the war started in September of 1939, but uh, there was no war in the Pacific until December 7th of 1941. The British uh, realized this could very well be a possibility of war being in that Singapore region, and so they planted about 80,000 soldiers there and sent some of their best ships. They were fresh off a a uh, time where they had uh, shown themselves to to be strong, They had uh, won some great victories. Their pilots had showed themselves to be superior uh, to the Germans at the Battle of Britain. And so there was kind of an air that this, well, this city of Singapore was, well, undefeatable. But then December 7th or December 8th, if you are on the other side of the line, uh, when this took place, The Japanese quickly made their way down uh, through different regions and came to the Malaysian Peninsula and worked their way down, and it became very obvious very quickly that the British were going to be defeated. Even though they had defenses, they had ships, they had planes, it became very clear that the Japanese had better planes, better pilots at the time. Their ships were uh, much better at the time, and they were sinking what what was ever in their path. And... The army itself or the British were not well supplied, but uh, they were in fact uh, some of the ones that were not the strongest units. And so Singapore had to surrender. Winston Churchill's statement was that this was one of the darkest times in history to think that 80,000 British soldiers surrendered all at once. And to think that they all went into captivity, it was one of the darkest times, even though they had just had some good times of winning battles, it was one of the darkest times that they had suffered a great defeat of this magnitude. And we get to Exodus chapter 34, you have an event like that. Coming off a high point in Exodus chapter 20, where God speaks with his people that he's redeemed and delivered Uh, you get to exodus chapter 32 33 and 34 and you have an incident that is one of the most shameful in the history of the nation of israel and this is the event known as the golden calf while moses is up interceding uh, in place of the people being the mediator the go-between to get the message of god and to get the law written on stone tablets the nation down the hill had gotten to the point where they were uh, concerned that Moses wasn't going to come down and that suddenly they needed something to help them if Moses wasn't going to be there and they came up with a plan to create a golden calf to worship it call it by the name of God Because they were going to declare a festival unto the Lord, unto Jehovah. And they rose up and had a a huge party that had all sorts of things in it that shouldn't have gone on. And it was at that point where God sent Moses down. Confusion reigned between uh, Joshua and Moses in one sense because it sounded like a battle was taking place, but that wasn't what was going on. It was the, si- the, the sounds of uh, a partying. And when Moses came down, we have that event where the tablets were broken because really symbolizing the nation of Israel and what they had done to break God's laws. Multiple of the Ten Commandments they broke with the event of the golden calf at this point that Moses begins to intercede he goes back uh, first to the people and and challenges them with their sin but goes before God and pleads for the people the nation that God wouldn't destroy them because God suggests the fact that he should just start with Moses start off with a new people and Moses has to intercede and you have some of the greatest sections of prayer in the scripture, when Moses is uh, interceding and placing himself as a sacrifice, if it's possible for the the people of Israel, but it's Moses going back down the hill and telling the people that they're under the judgment of God and that God is not going to go with them. In fact, he's going to go outside the camp, and so Moses meets with God outside the camp and this tent that's there, and the glory of God appears there, and it comes to the point where it sounds like from what God's saying is that he's not going to go with the nation of Israel okay we'll let you go through the wilderness but I'm not going to go with you I'll just send a messenger and you're on your own and it's with all of this going on that Moses is fairly discouraged because he's got people who are defeated people who've sinned and it seems like God is just kind of pulling back from helping the nation of Israel And you find in reading the the account of the story in chapter 33, you find that Moses said unto the Lord, "Uh, seest thou sayest to me, bring up this people that thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. He's saying, you, you said, you're gonna help me out. At least I was the one that didn't do this. You said I've got Grace. Verse 14, God responded, My presence shall go with thee, I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not up with me, carry us not up hence. Don't take us to the the so-called promised land. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us, so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said unto Moses, "I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken; for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name." Verse eighteen. Here's here's what Moses asks for. Here's a discouraged leader with people who are defeated. He says to God, "Verse eighteen, I beseech thee, show me thy glory." Verse 19, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, thou cannot see my face for there shall no man see me and live. Verse 21, the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. Thou shalt stand upon a rock and it shall come to pass While my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, or the effects of me going by. But my face thou shalt not see. And so you have in chapter 34 this account where Moses gets ready. He makes this tablet to go up and see God. And so, verse 4, he hewed two tables of stone, like unto the first, And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, it says this. And this is important because this is what we're going to be looking at, this idea and this theme in the next two verses we're going to look at for the next several weeks. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third And fourth generation Moses's response when he hears this is that he made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped what you have in verses 6 and 7 some have described as the confessional statement of the nation of Israel that statement uh, Moses didn't see God he didn't see a display of God's glory we would expect that if you're looking to see God's glory there would be some sort of visible manifestation uh, and uh, that type of thing take place that you would see glory and at times we can see God's glory what he's like displayed in the things we see Psalm 19 makes very clear that heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We can look at creation and see the power of God. We can see it displayed. But in this case, God is not going to display his power this way. He's going to display his power by communicating who he is. In words that are easily understandable and frameable by us, we can understand the communication that God is trying to get across. And it was intended for this to be the statement that would be what the individuals in the nation of Israel would hold to as far as understanding this God that they had a relationship with. And what you find with this statement is that this is not the only place where this statement is made. As you go through the Old Testament and you read further stories in the history of the nation of Israel, or you read the Psalms, or you read some of the stories of the prophets, and even when you get into the New Testament, these statements about the character of God are things that people in everyday life, everyday situations will look to for their strength, for their encouragement, for their help. These statements that God is one who is gracious, that he's long-suffering, that he's abundant, overflowing in goodness and truth. I mean, these are the type of statements that you need and really reflect the character of God. We oftentimes magnify the other side, that God is waiting to judge us he does visit iniquity it does say this and we'll look at a discussion of this but what god really is magnifying here by the weight of the different things that he uses to describe his own character he's describing a character that is good and merciful and gracious that that's what he wants to display to us the graciousness and the willingness to give to us these things are what God, when he displays his glory, chooses to magnify. But yet these statements are what people in the nation of Israel's history are going to use to give them encouragement throughout the rest of their history. And as we enter into this study that we're just simply calling the glory of God we're in a- everyday life or a- revealed uh, in everyday life, we're going to look at these different passages But what I want to do is not look at this passage here specifically. I want to go back to the prelude to the story, the precursor to the story, the time where this type of thing was previously communicated. Some of these truths that were communicated to Moses at this time had been communicated just a little over a month before this. Just a couple of weeks, God had declared this. And for what I want us to do for the rest of the evening is turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Turning to Exodus chapter 20, you probably recognize this as, oh, those are the Ten Commandments. What we have here is a statement, a declaration of God that he made to his people. See, what had happened to this point, you, you understand the story of the book of Exodus. What God declared he was going to do was that he was going to redeem the nation of Israel. You know, what is the idea of redemption? The idea is paying a, a price to free someone. Well, in this case, what you find is that God, through his power, the 10 plagues and other workings that he does, he delivers, he gets the nation of Israel and buys them out of slavery brings them through the waters of the Red Sea, and brings them to this mountain where he meets with them. I mean, what you find in looking at this passage is that God delivered his people for not just the the sake that he could say, I saved people. No, he saved people to have fellowship with them. And so when they come uh, to this mountain and there is a declaration that the people are supposed to get ready to meet with their God. Moses tells them God's going to show up and he's going to show up in power and he's going to display his glory and he wants to meet with you. He tells the people to get ready. He gives them three days to say God is going to appear to you and you need to be ready. And you see in verse number 16 that it In chapter 19 that it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled and moses brought the people out forth out of the camp to meet god and they stood at the nether part or just on the outside of where the boundaries were for this mountain You have a display of God's power. Anybody that was there could not ignore what was going on. It was like you had a volcanic eruption uh, happening on this mountain. No one could miss it. And a light show to go along with it. And noise. You think about God. We looked at the psalm just a few weeks ago where it talks about the voice of the Lord as it thunders. I mean, the people got a display of what God was like. They could see this, that God was a God of great power. But what you have is that God then communicates them to them in words. It's not just that he displays his power and everyone's just kind of an awe and going, wow, what a great God. No, God chooses to declare, to communicate himself directly to his people. So you see in verse one, it says, God spake all these words saying, and then he says this I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself, verse 5, to them, nor serve them. And then the statement For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth a generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And we'll stop there. See, what God is uh, declaring is that he redeemed his people to have fellowship with them. I mean, this is an overall theme. What we're dealing with here is an overall theme of the Scripture. Mankind, you have uh, them created, and in chapter 2, man and woman, they're created, put in a perfect place, in a perfect environment where they can meet with God uh, and fellowship with Him. And you have in chapter 3 that fellowship broken. Mankind has sin, and sin separates from God, separates from the blessing of meeting with God. Eden is kind of a picture of a place where individuals get to meet and fellowship with God. Thus, the term paradise, name for heaven, where eventually people are going to be able to be with God forever and fellowship with him. I mean, that's the, the picture that's there. But mankind separated themselves from God. That fellowship, that opportunity to fellowship directly with God was lost and there are a few occasions as you go through the book of genesis where some people were able to meet with god one-on-one you have the accounts of abraham talking with god and discussing what's going to happen with sodom and gomorrah or you you have uh, some other individuals jacob on uh, jacob's ladder is able to see up and down in heaven and hear the voice of god and to have discussions with him but For the most part, most people are not seeing God directly nor communicating with him face-to-face. They hear things about him and this type of thing, but in general, this doesn't happen. But the unique thing is, is that God chooses the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you my people. And it's not because they're noble. It's not because they're great and fantastic. You look at the 12 sons of Jacob that become the, well, 12 tribes of Israel, and they're not nice individuals. And God says, I'm going to make a people out of you. And I'm going to show what I can do for you. I'm going to, and you get to the book of Exodus, as bad things are happening, he says, I'm going to redeem you. And he buys them out, and he does all those things and brings them out, and he brings them to this mountain where he gets to communicate and meet with them. I mean, that's the bargain that's being made there. In in verse two, it's not really a bargain. It's just kind of a statement of fact that the Lord is redeeming his people for fellowship. He wants to be able to to be in a relation with them, to enter into a covenant, which is ultimately what they're going to do. I'll be your God if you'll be my people. And that's what Exodus 24 is going to, to get us to, is that the nation agrees to be their people. What God wants to have is a relationship with his people based on loyalty and love. That he's loyal to them, that he loves them, and that they love him and are loyal to him. And so this is why he begins to lay out these commandments. Okay, for us when it comes to these commandments, God gives commandments to his people in order for them to reflect his image. Men and women were created to reflect the image of God here on the earth. And so what God does in these 10 commandments is just simply give them what they should be doing in order to reflect God's character, what he's like to a world at large. If the nation are going to be this nation is going to be his people, they're going to follow him as their their God, they are going to live it out show it forth show forth what their god is like these commandments are not just merely things to put on the wall for you to go okay we're going to follow these things and kind of robotically or by force follow them no the commandments were given for these people to go here is a way for you to show your loyalty and your affection for your god what he's like, and be able to display this to people around you that have no idea what God is like. One put it this way, it is therefore safe to say that these laws are more than simply good rules to live by. They show us something of the nature of God, and for this they deserve our close attention. We see in them not simply what we must do, but what God is like. We see an understanding and a picture of what God is like when God declares these Ten Commandments. Israel's not to do as other people do by worshipping of idols of their gods, nor are they to do as the other nations do by worshipping their own God in their own way. And what we read was the first two the of two, the Ten Commandments. Some uh, religions try and make them just one command and change up with the order of the Ten Commandments. But you have very clearly when it starts off in verse number three, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The, the, the statement of God is this, is that I am the right God, the only God. That this is a command just simply this, that the nation of Israel worships the right God. I'm the only God. There's no one besides me. And as you think about what God did in the, well, the book of Exodus, and every one of those plagues was a direct affront to some sort of God that the nation of Egypt had. You can just mark it through, these different gods, the god of the Nile a god of water. And even the last plague, when you had, well, the firstborn of Pharaoh die. Pharaoh was supposedly the offspring of Ra, the sun god, and his own son could not be protected. All of these different plagues that God had was a direct affront to all the gods of Egypt. And so when God calls them, right here at the beginning, he says, I want you to worship the right god. Don't think that there's any other God, that there's any other possibility. There's only one God that you can truly fellowship with. But it's the second command that we want to zoom in on. And it's the command that we might just simply say this, that God does not want his image distorted. He doesn't want what he looks like or who he is distorted by us. And the command is simply this, thou shalt make, not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in earth beneath and that is in the water under the earth. I mean, he says this, don't try and create me. In fact, the command could just simply be stated this, that you're worshiping the right God in the right way. Okay, it's forbidding that you worship him in the wrong way. Well. The problem with people trying to create an image of God, even though they might be saying we're worshiping God, the problem is, is that you'll come up far short of what he's like. I mean, the first understanding that you have to have is this, is that God is a spirit. He does not have shape and form like we do, though at times God does communicate that his arm is doing something, that his eye sees is doing something, but that's for us to understand what God is doing. But that's not what he has as far as his shape. But then you think about him. He's infinite in all of his ways. He has no, put it this way, no boundaries. So for us to try and go, okay, well, let's create this statue and give him boundaries and shape is going to misrepresent what your God's like. You're going to be one who comes up far short of what God is like. And so God from the beginning just simply says this, don't make idols of me because if you make idols of me, you're going to misrepresent what I'm like. You're going to give people a bad impression of who I am or a wrong impression of who I am. So don't make the idols. To make an image of God is to debase him. To make a true image of God is impossible. This command does not forbid imagery. Do understand that. There are some that have taken this and go, well, you can't make statues or paintings or pictures of anybody. That's not what it's forbidding. It's forbidding that you make images and call them God and worship them. Okay, just understand that because that is what some people in major religious groups believe. It's just simply saying this. Don't try and attempt to confuse people with what I'm like. But then God communicates what he is in ways that we can go, okay, my God's like this. I'm not going to try and craft and shape him with arms and legs and this type of thing. But I can tell you this, by words, declare what he's like. Okay, you want to know what my God's like? He's going to tell you what he's like. Things for you to grab onto and go, okay, this is what my God is like. And the things that he declares is this, is that God gives his correct image, and here's what he states. Verse number five, Thou shalt not bow down thyselves before them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And that's the first thing that he's declaring to these people as far as his character. This is what my character's like. I'm jealous. Now, For us, immediately as soon as we hear that, it brings up all sorts of wrong connotations. Because if we're jealous of somebody, we think of this, that we're envious of something that somebody else has. And that we uh, have this and that this is a word that you don't want to be described as. But think about in the scripture that as you read through it, sometimes you'll find that this word is translated jealous. And in other passages of scripture, it'll be translated by another word very similar in sound, zealous. Okay, zealous. Zealous. Zealous is probably a better translation to understand exactly what it means. It is a not so much an emotion as an activity. Uh, zealousness is an a- activity uh, sometimes of, well, response of judgment and violence. It is an interest in keeping a bond together such as, well, a marriage bond. You would hope that a husband would be Zealous about his wife, that that wife would be faithful to him. And you would expect the other side of this that the wife would go, I expect that husband to be loyal to me. There is a passion and a fervency and a zealousness that goes along with the relationship this is a term of relationship god's saying i'm a zealous god i'm interested in keeping this relationship strong i want to keep this uh as strong as it possibly can that my connection to you is not limited but that there's a strength of connection and a bond that will not be broken I mean, zealousness is not uh, seen here as intolerance, but an exclusiveness. No husband who truly loved his wife can endure to share her with another man. No more was God willing to share Israel with some rival. And when jealousy is aroused through disobedience, it leads to punishment. But when roused through obedience, this result is blessing. And that's exactly what you're going to see played out here. That the nation of Israel, they're claiming to be God's people. They want to have a relationship with them. But when they go away, what does this require God to do? To be zealous to call them back. To try and bring them back to the relationship that they're supposed to be having. But what happens when that relationship is good and there's a zealousness there? God is willing to shower good. Goodness. Mercy. Grace. All of these things that God does this way god is jealous he refuses to share his glory with another isaiah chapter 42 and 48 declare this when the nation of israel is considering the possibility of idols and he says listen i'm a jealous god i share my glory with none other okay i'm not going to be one who has got my relationship taken away And this term jealous is actually, in in thinking about it, as I read read this statement, this this ought to be a comforting statement to you as a follower of God. The statement says we cannot be jealous concerning things which are indifferent to us. God is not indifferent regarding us. God's not up in heaven and going, I don't care. I don't care about you. I don't care about what's going on. I, I really am kind of apathetic or blasé. Uh, uh, I'm, I really don't care what's going on in your life and who you are and what's going on. No, the idea of jealous is that God is fervent about the relationship that he has with you. It's something that the passion will not die And so, when the statement is made that God is a jealous God, there is an interest, a fervency about you being His people, and that He wants to act towards you in loyalty. The problem is that at times, and this served as a warning to the nation of Israel, you see in verse 5 that I am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children until the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. See, if you claim to be a child of God and you claim to be a follower of God, what God is going to do is that he is going to visit you with chastening. His word visit is an interesting term that's used throughout the book of Exodus to describe God coming down and seeing what the nation of Egypt is doing to the children of Israel. And he comes down and he visits the nation of Israel and he sees these things and it's at that point where he starts meeting out judgment on the nation of Egypt. And you know when we wander from God and go away from Him and begin to consider maybe other gods are out there that are better than the God that we have, that sometimes God comes and He visits and He brings judgment. Okay, judgment that's designed to chasten you. Okay, punishment's got the idea of permanency. What God does is He brings in chastening because chastening's goal is to bring us back. And what God will do is that he will bring judgment. And you read this, and there might be something that kind of wells up in you and go, I I can't believe this is a statement. That God visits the iniquity of the father upon the, the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate him. I mean, what it sounds like is that if a father sins, that the children get punished for it. Is that not what it sounds like? I mean, how do you explain a passage like that where it says your sin ends up, well, bringing judgment upon a whole bunch of people? And you think about this. Sin does have an effect on those following after you. You've not seen the consequences of someone who's done drugs in their youth and perhaps the medical difficulties that happen to their children. The wild spending of a father can bring their children to poverty. That these type of things can happen. It happens. But that's not really what's being emphasized here. There is uh, the possibility that sin can have consequences that go on for generations. But what's being declared here is that God is saying this, that the sins that the father commits, and God will judge them, if the children commit the same thing, God's going to punish them the same way. And it's going to go from generation to generation. Now think in the context of what he's discussing here. He's talking about idolatry and you look at what happens when it comes to idolatry in the nation of Israel. The fathers sin by going into idolatry and what happens? The children take this up and the children's children take this up and it's a very hard cycle to break. Look at the kings of Judah and what they did and it talks about them continuing in the sins of their father and every once in a while that cycle breaks and you're going okay there's blessing upon this individual because they're following after god but the sin of idolatry for the nation of israel trying to find another god besides god was one that had an effect and impact upon generation upon generation and these individuals were going to get judged for their own sin that they were repeating in the father I mean, this does go along with several passages of Scripture that make it very clear that an individual is not judged because of their parents' sin. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16 says this, The father shall not be put to death for their children, neither shall the children be put to death for their fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. God judges us on the basis of our own sin, though our consequences of our sins can have a long-term effect, impact on people's life. We will get judged for our own sins or... Ezekiel eighteen, which is a whole discussion of judgment upon individuals for their sin and blessing upon them for doing what's right. Uh, Ezekiel eighteen, four starts this way Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Okay, each person bears an individual responsibility. And so when God says here that I'm going to visit the iniquity of the Father upon the third and the fourth generation, that if it happens again, God will judge. If it happens again, God will judge. He'll try and chasten and bring these people back and he'll keep doing this generation from gen- to generation, calling his people to be his people, trying to bring them back. And you go, is that a good thing? Yes, the chastening of God is a good thing. Hebrews uh, chapter 12, uh, as you read that passage, uh, you find that this chastening of God is a good thing. It symbolizes the fact that we have a Father in heaven that loves us. And that even though the punishment at times is painful, it's for, well, eternal benefit and for righteousness. So that God is a God who's jealous, it might be this for us to understand that God is jealous about this relationship and at times we go through chastening and it's because not God doesn't like it, that God doesn't like us. No, he loves us and his activity and love towards us because as you read the terms here, love and hate in this passage, it's not referring to emotion, it's referring to activity. I'll be able to prove that here in a second but it's referring to activity the way that god shows his love towards us is that he's active towards us that he's chastening us trying to call us back to relationship our god is one who's jealous about the relationship that we have with him and his desire is for uh, us to be close to him And so when it says visiting the iniquity of the fathers and you say, well, that's kind of a harsh thing, but understand it's God's action of love towards us that he sometimes chastens us to bring us back to fellowshipping with him. I mean, we like the other side of this idea of God's jealousness, his zealousness. In verse number six, that God is a God who shows Mercy. This is a loaded term. It's the uh, Hebrew word that you will see throughout uh, the Old Testament. It's the word Hesed. It can be translated many different ways. It can be translated uh, by mercy as it is here or by loving kindness or that it can be translated by love or it can be translated by grace. Uh, It's a term that just is is extolling the fact that God wants to give good to his people. Okay, we understand this a little bit more in the New Testament as we understand that God is like a father, trying to display good to his children. So it is when it comes to the zealousness of relationship, God is trying to display to us goodness and grace and mercy. In fact, he delights in this. I mean, think about this as earthly fathers. Hopefully, none of us are really excited about the fact of having to hand out punishment and chastening to our children. That this is something we delight in. You go, know, why do you do it? Because you know it's for their own good. It's because it's what's the best thing for them, not to let them wander, not to let them go astray, but to have them understand that sin has consequences, that the way of the transgressor is hard, it's difficult. And so as fathers, we hand out punishment, but that's not what brings us to light. So it is for God. And we're going to look at the statement in Exodus chapter 34 next week. You find that there are more statements about what God wants to do for his people than there is about his judgment. That you almost this way, and and think about this as we go through this, that you have to provoke God's wrath. His mercy, his goodness, his grace, and all of these things flow out of him. That's what he wants to be identified by, but because we're the ones who wander away, he's got to do the other thing, and that's chasing us. See, this, this statement is uh, here in verse number six is that God is showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and it's attached to this, and keep my commandments. This is New Testament type of sounding phrases that the Lord is talking to his disciples in the book of John. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And if you declare this, you, you declare that you follow after me and that you love me, well, do those things that. Match up to what I'm like, that I've commanded you to do, that are in line with what my character is. Do those things. That God delights in showing mercy and love to individuals doing that. In fact, the statement that it's unto thousands of them that love me. You know, you've got two or three generations God shows his judgment to here. What you have is this phrase on the other side that's talking about the overabundance of God's grace and mercy to us the we would put it this way that this word thousands is like the ideas of myriads upon myriads just innumerable number of God's grace being shown that's kind of the Old Testament way of describing this is that it's not just to a thousand. This was just a generic term that is describing the fact that God's grace is just overabundant, excelling to those that love him. I mean, it is great uh, numerical contrast to two or three or four to thousands. He wanted to show loyalty to a people forever who were loyal to him. And when you get right down to it, there's this play back and forth in terms of love and hate that describe loyalty. And for us to understand what God is like and for us to be uh, fully understanding of what he's like, there is a loyalty on our part where we will see our God. In our sin, we don't show loyalty. We're not faithful to him. We might put it that way, as it does in the New Testament, that God is faithful. God never wanders off from us. God never wanders astray from us. God is loyal and passionate and zealous and jealous about the relationship that he has with us. We're the ones who tend to walk away. I was thinking about the fact that you have a passage in first corinthians chapter 10 that talks about that god is faithful who when we are tempted will provide us with what a way of escape that we may be able to bear it there are occasions where we wander from god and god in his loyalty to us makes it clear here are ways for you to escape this You don't have to go down this path you don't have to go this direction i'm going to give you grace and mercy by showing you the way to escape sin and continue to have fellowship with me god never leaves us it's us that is the one or we that are the ones that leave him so very often but for us what we need to as we kind of just build in our understanding is to get a better understanding of our God when God wants us to know what he's like it's not that he shows this great display of power though he does sometimes what we're going to find is when he wants to show his glory he's going to declare himself and what he's like for us to be able to grab onto this and go my God's like this I'm not having to decide, okay, does he have an arm or a leg in this and shape him? No, God says, here's how you can define me. I'm going to tell you what my character is like, what I will do, what I will do in certain situations, what I am. And in this case, where you have the nation of Israel standing there, the whole nation united, God is declaring this, I'm a God who's jealous about you. I'm zealous to have a relationship with you. You wander, and what I will do is I will do what I can to draw you back. But if you're loyal to me, you'll find an overabundance that cannot even be described Of the goodness and the mercy and the grace that I want to show to you. That God is that kind of a God. We oftentimes think that, okay, he's a God who is mean, spirited, and the like. Well, that's our flesh. And we need to get ourselves, well, shaped to what God says about himself, what he's like. And as we go in daily life, as we go through this study, we're calling it the glory of God in everyday life. If we understand certain characteristics about God, it will affect the way that we live our life daily. As we go through difficult times, we can still understand this truth that God's zealous about me. He's not wanting to break off this relationship. He wants to hold on to me with all uh, of the might of the universe, he's holding on to me. Because he's zealous, he's jealous about holding on to that relationship. If I have that in my mind, as I go through some of the difficulties of life, I won't be shaken. In fact, there's a strength that you find, but it comes from knowing your God, what he's like, and who he is so as we go into this study i trust that you will uh take this up and what i'm going to do is i'm going to give you an assignment oh pastor you're supposed to let me walk out of here with nothing i want you to turn back to exodus chapter 34 because what i want you to do and this is something that i have done i did it this last year and just allowed this to kind of be a a, Uh, two verses that were always in my mind that I'd quote to myself repeatedly over and over again. It's verses 6 and 7. I would like for us as a church to memorize these two verses. And not necessarily the very first part there in 6 where it said the Lord passed by before him, but the statement the Lord makes about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth i mean these things that you can remind yourself of and if you have it memorized and you've thought about it long enough it's at times where things aren't going right where you can all of a sudden remember no there's a god who's merciful and gracious and when you sin you can go god thank you for being long-suffering we'll talk a little bit more about what that means to be long-suffering the long-suffering of god what does that mean but these things that you have in your head that you've thought about and memorized and meditated upon that you get this in your head it's at the times that you need it most you all of a sudden go, my God's like this. And he really can magnify himself with that kind of truth through my life by him displaying these type of things in my life that you can see the glory of God but you've got firm things to grab onto. Words statements about who he is and so what i want us to do as a church uh, here in the next couple of weeks uh, we'll come in and even work on saying this as a group but uh, working on exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7 because this is going to be the focus of our study and you're going to see this surprisingly if you haven't memorized this or thought about it you're going to see it throughout the old testament and how it was used in certain situations And some we might not even have thought about that a passage like this could actually be used. And so I trust this will be a blessing that you are settled on the character of God. You know it, and that the glory of God can be seen in your everyday life because you know your God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your words about yourself as you reveal them to us, as you've declared them that we would be people that would rest upon this, that we wouldn't shape what we think about you on our own understanding and our own concepts. Know that as we read words like this and consider what you've said, that it would solidify our relationship with you. You're faithful to us. Help us to have a loyalty to you as people of God. So Lord, help us to, to draw nigh to you and know you by the way that you show yourself and declare yourself and that it would have impact in the way that we do things because we know you as our god you are great we understand your mercy to us and sending your son to make the relationship possible may we take advantage of the relationship that you've given to us to know you better, to draw nigh to you and be close to you and understand you better. May you be glorified in our lives, magnified in our lives. In this we pray in your name, in the name of your son, amen.